My name is Sean Thomas, and I'm the author of Be More Today, a 40-day guide to a better version of you. As doctor of physical therapy, I've seen thousands of people do great things. They came to me with ailments, physical ailments, pain, issues, and they got through them, all because they decided in their mind they were going to do it. So I wrote a book about it. Your thoughts can make you great, or they can make you crumble. Those thoughts actually control everything in your life. I have three things I want you to do. Starts. Things I want you to start doing in your life that you said you wanted to do at some point in time. You said them. Stops. Things I want you to stop doing in your life, which I know you also want to stop. And three goals for your lives. And I take you through a 40-day guide to make sure you take those thoughts for those three things into reality. Now, I put some workouts in there too. Workouts to keep you always on the move because you got to keep moving. you got to stay focused. So, 40 days. Thoughts, workouts, you. And all I want you to do is trust the process and just be persistent. Visit BeMoreTodayBook.com. That's right, BeMoreTodayBook.com. And I guarantee you, if you just trust the process and be persistent, you too can be the best version of you. What's going on, folks? It's your boy again, Dr. Sean Thomas, back in the building, episode 74 of the Be More Today show. We are back, we are back, we are back in the building, and it's been, again, amazing. 74 episodes, folks. We're trending, we're growing, we're expanding. Be More Today is a movement, and for those who don't know, we've been uh, doing this since last year. Uh, it's our second season of the Be More Today show. We've had 74 guests on the show, and it's been great uh, seeing our progression uh, we are now a fitness brand, um, looking to start our own PT company, Be More Today PT. Um, so look out for that, hopefully sometime next year. But Be More Today is a movement. Uh, we are everywhere on Facebook, Instagram, uh, with my book, uh, Be More Today book, uh, 40 Guys for a Better Version of You, which is on Amazon and also, uh, on our website, bemoretoday.com. So go on there and check out the book if you don't have it already. And as always, please subscribe, subscribe, subscribe to our YouTube pages. Uh, for our workouts, for these shows, you're also going to be uh, at least the videos on, on YouTube and our podcast platforms on various platforms. Please subscribe and let the world know that you are following us. We will continue to follow you. Right now, we're heard in 39 countries and we're trending, trending, trending every single week. So thank you so much for your love, your support and your follows. Um, my quote for today is very simple as always. And it's by uh, Miss Franklin. And she said, it's hard for roots to grow if they don't trust the ground. It's hard for roots to grow if they don't trust the ground. Uh, school is back in session. My daughter is starting first grade. She had her first uh, day yesterday, actually. It's the day two today for her. And uh, she was super nervous. Um, we saw her classroom in advance. She actually was in person, which has been great because her school is very, very good with all the uh, um, protocols for everything. But she's in person. and But, you know, new teachers... Uh, different classroom, uh, more students in the room. She was nervous. And she ran a race the day before, which was this um, Fifth Avenue Mile, which is basically a race that we've done a number of times in the past, but haven't done since 2019 because of COVID-19. And every time she goes to run, she gets scared. Um, she's done this before. She's done these races before. But every single time she does these things, she's super nervous. She starts twiddling her fingers and starts not crying, but, you know, just getting fearful of what's going to happen at the end. And I always remind her, look, you can do this. You've done this before. You can do it again. Um, and, you know, it's hard for people to trust when you're doing certain things, even if you've done it before, right? She's done this with me before. She knows me. She knows I would never put her in a situation where she is going to be at harm or anything, but just trust, even trust that you can do something again is hard. So for people who have a hard time doing things for the first time, you know, it's really good to have a good foundation. It's good to have a, a, a foundation of something that makes sure you're grounded so that you can put your roots in and then you can grow. Um, whether it's going to be something that my daughter doing like a race thing or even starting school, or you just doing what you want to do in terms of your personal life, right? Whether you have aspirations and dreams for uh, uh, getting your doctorate or finishing a book or going back to school or or all these things that we have in our mind that you want to do, you got to lay the foundation down first. And it has to be deeply rooted uh, into the ground. I think about marathon training as well. You know, you can't just go out there and run a marathon. You got to train. You got to put practice in there. You got to trust the process and be persistent. Like I always say, 
but it takes effort and it's hard for roots to grow if they don't trust the ground, right? It's hard for you to get, actually get up there and for roots to go if you don't trust the process. You don't trust people who are working with you. You don't trust the uh, commitment that you've made to get from A to B. It's hard for roots to grow. So I implore you to go out there and uh, lay down those roots, uh, trust the foundation you're putting them in. And after you do those things that you will definitely see growth, you're actually gonna see progress. You won't be so fearful when you do certain things you're going to see results. And my guest on today's show uh, is, is really family. She's friends. She's everything to me. I, I haven't really seen her as much as I wanted to in life. But every time we reconnect, it's always like we were right back in school uh, day one. And her name, folks, is Dr. Ayana Peak. Now, for those who don't know, Dr. Peak is originally from Louisville, Kentucky. Dr. P completed her PsyD in Applied Psychology at Western Kentucky University, her MS specialist degree in Social Psychology at the University of Rhode Island, and her BA degree in Educational Studies. Human Development at Brown University, Bruno, you know, class of 03 all day. Although she recently accomplished her childhood goal to become Dr. Ayanna Peak in August 2011, sorry, 2021, Dr. Peak has worked as a school psychologist for 16 years. Now, Ayana has served as a school psychologist for students in pre-K uh, to 12th grade, North Carolina, South Carolina, and Kentucky since 2005. She's very passionate about removing barriers to learning so that school is a safe place for all students regardless of their background, and all students have access to social mobility through education. Through her work in public education, Dr. Peek has noticed how much mental health needs negatively impact or impact education, and that there are disparities in access to that high quality mental health services for disadvantaged communities. Dr. Peek aspires to provide quality mental health services for children and families in underserved communities to address this, this disparity and to access and to access to be remote barriers to learning and self-actualization. Ayana has most recently begun training to specialize in working with parents of children with disruptive behaviors and youth impacted by trauma. These are two areas that negatively impact school and overall quality of life for the child and family. Dr. Peek aspires to provide quality mental health services with compassion and integrity so that her clients are able to cope with life in safe and healthy ways. Her ultimate goal is her clients and her students and their families to become empowered, to advocate for their needs so that they too can accomplish their dreams. Her hobbies include reading, traveling, cooking, trying new cuisines, hiking, and her dogs and domestic international community services and mission work. Her favorite international destinations so far I've been in Romania, where she worked with Bread of Life Children's Home and Youth Transition Program. She has served there for four summers and hopes to return again next summer. As a Christian and as an ordained minister, she attributes her passion for helping others as an example of her faith in action. Second to international missions is Dr. Peek's passion for serving in children's ministry. She formerly served as co-pastor in children's ministry, but not at least Dr. Peek's uh, works to give back to her local community by connecting youth to uh, co-curricular activities to expand her, their horizons and build their character. Often participated in such programs as youth and throughout her schooling, she believes that she at this point in her life and career, because of the sacrifices and generosity of those who come before her, she wants the youth to know that she is a mentor to, to them and understand that their present sacrifices can definitely help them reach their personal and professional goals. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, pets included, please welcome to the stage my friend, the superstar of all superstars, and the newest doctor that I know, Dr. Ayana Peak. Dr. Peak, what's going on? Nothing much. Thank you for that awesome introduction. I feel like I need to rise to the occasion yeah, um, for all, right. all the wonderful things you share. So thank you for the opportunity to talk to you and to all the folks who connect with you. No problem. Listen, we um we go way back. I mean, podcast aside, right? Uh, we went to Brown University, graduated 03. You and I pretty much met day one. Uh, yes. Psychology majors, in multiple psychology classes and uh we connected off the bat um we know we, we got to know each other we saw each other all the time we pretty much stayed in contact you know throughout most of our time away from school um mm -hmm. but we just had a really a, a great connection uh not just in terms of 
schooling and, and our admiration for psychology and the study of it, but also just in terms of our faith and our walk and, you know, a lot of other things that we just connected with uh, pretty much off the bat. You were uh, a source of stability for me uh, many times during my, my, my tenure at Brown. And I'm not sure if you know that, I'm sure you probably do, but um, it's just been a pleasure to see your growth and to see you uh, become the woman that you are. And it was never a doubt in my mind that you'd be great. And you always call me a superstar, but you truly are the superstar. And I'm really just impressed by you and proud of you. And congrats on your doctorate. Uh, well-deserved. And yeah, just super excited for all the things that are coming down your way now moving forward. Thank you. Thank no you. Problem. Thank you. No problem. So listen, let's get into it. You have a wealth of information. I kind of want to uh, get into it. And, and you know, I, as I spoke about on the show, was a psychology major in school, um, the PsyD program was something that I contemplated, and I contemplated it probably too late uh, because I was thinking about medical school and didn't get in, and um, always thought about doing a psychology program in the in the in the long run if things didn't work out. And when I finally applied, you know, I just wasn't in the right mindset, and I didn't get into any programs at all. Um, but people who study psychology again either go all the way with it, um, or they decide this is just going to be something that they do to get to the next level of something else. And you, my friend, went all the way with it. Um, so what is the PsyD degree that you have? Um, and what was that, that, that doctoral process for you like? Because it's been a minute and you're here. Yeah. So I kind of want to hear the story of the journey. Yep, so I will start with um, just echoing, yes, we definitely connected at Brown and we had lots of awesome experiences and memories. I was helping a friend move recently and I was like, I had a friend that helped me in college move and we moved with a, a shopping cart, we moved with a, with a Jeep. I'm like, and now I can actually drive like a truck and a real van to move. So <laughs> I have progressed as well, like in my outside professional activities, like of moving, like I now know how to move the right way with like the right vehicles and tools. But I said it to say like, just like moving in college and different experiences in college or regression so has been my experience with psychology and so when I went to I knew at age 16 that I wanted to become a doc I was going to be Dr. Ayana Maia Peak like I knew that I was thinking it was going to be a medical doctor and so when I went to Brown I was either going to be a doctor or a lawyer um, but I love Brown because we could take whatever courses we wanted and so I did not take any math or science that first semester I was like taking human different different courses but things I was interested in but not math and science and I saw my friends who were taking organic chemistry and were taking calculus and I was like what's not going to happen is me doing those courses. And so I ended up doing human development through um, educational studies because I was really interested in understanding how we grow and develop to become who we are and how I can go on my trajectory and my siblings can go on their trajectory and we're from the same household, but like, how do we, how do we develop into who we, who we become and how do we really make the most of the opportunities that we're given? And so that's kind of what captured me with human development and developmental psychology. Um, my parents told me when I went to Brown that I could not become a teacher because they're both educators. Like we did not send you to Brown to become a teacher. And I said, okay, awesome. Well, I'm studying human development, educational studies. I'm not gonna be a teacher. So I'm meeting their goal, but not, but still doing what I wanted to do. Um, when I finished my, when I was in my senior year, I was looking at how to go to graduate school. And I was in a program, um, Institute for Recruitment of Teachers at Phillips Academy Andover in the summer. And I was talking to a mentor there, um, Kelly White, and I was telling him what I'm like, I wanted to help kids love school because I've been a nerd since before kindergarten. Like I've always loved school and I wanted to help kids love school. And so he was like, you need, you need to study school psychology. Well, I didn't know what school psychologists were. I didn't know what the philosophy of psychology was. And so I applied to graduate schools for different things, for psych, for psychology in general, developmental psychology, child psychology, and school psychology. I was also believing for full funding for graduate school, like I wanted to have no debt. And so I had an offer for University of Rhode Island. I had no debt with that offer and I took it. And so I ended up studying school psychology. Now, when I got to URI, I realized that what we do as school psychologists and what we're trained to do are sometimes two different things. So we're trained to do a wide variety of things to support students and families in and out of school. But oftentimes in the school setting, it looks like simply testing for special education services. And so when I got there, I was like, hmm, this is interesting. I know my experience was kind of the opposite. I was one, a few students in the advanced courses that I took in, in pre 
kindergarten through 12th grade. But I knew that like the research showed me that there were far too many African-American students and students of color in special education services. So I'm like, so why, like, why is there this gap? So I began to like research and understand like, okay, well, how do you change this process? And I decided that I really wanted to see what school psychologists did. And so I actually started out my first master's was, was a PhD program in school psychology. But I decided that I really wanted to get experience and figure out what school psychologists did before I committed to doing like three or four more years of study. And so I stopped at my specialist degree, did my internship in North Carolina, fell in love with North Kakalaki, and I would go back there in a heartbeat any day. Um, and so I fell in love with North Carolina and I began to really work and apply my practice and my skills as a school psychologist and kind of day in and day out, kind of seeing what that looked like and felt like. So fast forward to 2017, I'm in Kentucky. Um, I have some friends who are in, who are going back to graduate school. And I was like, hmm, I still really want that doctorate degree. Am I ready to take the plunge? And so I found a program that accommodated students who were working and wanted to do school full-time. And so that's what I did at Western Kentucky University. And as applied psychology program, the PsyD focusing on, again, the application of psychology. So not just researching it, but taking research and best practices and applying it to help people change the trajectory to kind of help accomplish different goals. And so that's kind of what led me to the PsyD program. Again, I knew I was going to be Dr. Peak, but I didn't quite understand what that was going to look like and how I was going to get to that point. And so by the grace of God, 2021, you know, many years later than what I originally had planned, but still in the good planning and the good timing of God, like I have actually accomplished that goal. And so now um, I have background to understand what psychology looks like. I have experience what it looks like day to day in the school system. And I know now kind of how I wanna help people navigate those avenues so that they can have better outcomes and don't have to have this long process as if someone did not know understand their experiences. Mm. Incredible. And you know, it, it's been awesome. Yeah, someone who also went through uh, grad school and also got their doctorate, you know, it, for folks who don't know, it's tough, you know, it, it, it's, it's, it's something that you really have to say you want to get done, because yes. there are so many things that will deter you from getting it done. And there's so many hoops and things you have to jump through and get around and so many obstacles that, you know, the, the, the system is more made to fail you than to actually bring you through it, you know, so Anyone who gets that thing, I'm just like, yes, you, you've been through a journey. I don't even have to know what your journey is. I just know you've already been through a journey just to get there, just yes. to get to the end. So, yes. you know, I, I just say congrats to you for that. And, you know, looking at your bio, you mentioned, there's a, a phrase that you mentioned, um, and the phrase is called social mobility. Um, and I, I just want to talk a little bit, you know, we've been talking about mental health um, as part of Be More Today show, the platform we use, you use for this is to talk about health on all forms, holistic health, right? Physical, mental, spiritual, et cetera. And social mobility is something that you wrote in your bio. And I want to know why you think it's so important for young people, especially people of color, to have access to this concept of social mobility. So for me, I think that's pretty critical and pretty key. And that's one of the things that I would say that's been instilled in me from my parents and from previous generations. When I think back to like my family is African-American and I don't know exactly where, like I know some of my family came from um, we're on a worked on a plantation, we're slaves on a plantation in Mississippi, but I don't know like both sides of my family, like where the roots came from. But I know that for, for them as slaves, like for um, them as slaves, like they didn't have access to education. Like they were not able to read and write and it was really literally forbidden. And so over time, laws change, circumstances change. And I do have family members that were educators and that did start schools. And that's kind of trickled down throughout the generations. But I recognize that like literally not knowing how to read and write meant that they couldn't fill out birth certificates correctly. So like in trying to research genealogy for my family, I recognize, okay, names are spelled 10 different ways. Why? Because they were not literate. And so they spelled it the best they could, but then they didn't always, it didn't always persist over time. Um, being, being able to have access to things like voting. So being able to know, okay, when I go to the ballot, how do I mark these boxes? That's something that they weren't always able to do one legally, but then also when they could, if you couldn't read and write, that was a limitation. Um, and then as far as wanting wanting better. So every, I've never met a parent who does not want better for their children than they have for themselves. And I really believe that education in this country, we have the opportunity to have free and public education. And that education is a gift. But if you're given that gift and you don't know how to use it, it's really no good at all. And so being able to understand and utilize education and being able to have that to help you choose. So not everyone wants to go to college and that's perfectly okay, but not having the opportunity 
and make having the choice are two different things. And so to me, social mobility means you have the opportunity in front of you and you're able to choose how you navigate that based upon um, the things that you've been given. But if you don't have social mobility, you don't even have the choice. It's not even an option. It's kind of like, because of this, you can only do certain things. And so I wholeheartedly believe that education is part of how we can change that to be able to give people more opportunities for their future. So again, whether I choose to go to college, choose to get a doctorate or not, that is my choice as an individual. It's not determined for me based upon my income, my race, my language, my gender, my sexual orientation, where I grew up. Like none of those things affect that. I still have that choice because I'm offered a free and public education that's equal and accessible for me across the country. Got it. Yeah, I like that a lot. Um, you know, I, I'm a firm believer that, you know, the more options you have in life, the better always. And it's always good to be able to see what you don't like as opposed to what you do like and get a better idea of what you actually will like. But sometimes, yeah, you don't have even had those chances to even experience those things because of all the things you mentioned. And, you know, I, I, I think that it's so important for us just to give our kids, our young people, next generation, just all the things that that we had. You know, I think you and I came from backgrounds that were a little more affluent than others. So we've had more opportunities than some have. Um, and I take that for granted sometimes all the time, just thinking about it, looking back. But I do think people like you and I have found ways to give back and to make sure that everything we have learned, we share with somebody else, whether it's in the clinical setting like you're doing at your job or even in the uh, communities that you also have been doing as well. And we'll talk about that in a little while. But, um, you know, that, that concept of social mobility is a real one. Um, and I never thought about it in that, in that phrase or that, that term, um, but it makes complete sense. And, you know, especially looking at all the things that we've been seeing with our kids going through so much trauma, um, not just black and brown people, but just kids across the board of all colors and races and genders, um, with all the trauma that's been happening in our world, right? From the Asian hate to uh, Black Lives Matter to uh, everything happening with COVID-19 and just, you know, being home, Zoom calls, all that stuff. There's just so much trauma that they have to go through, have to go through with wearing masks, not wearing masks and not being able to, to see their classmates and to uh, socialize with other people, just a lot of trauma, right? And, you know, you mentioned also in your bio talking about the, uh, disruptive behaviors that these things um, impact youth, right? Well, kids who have disruptive behaviors and also the impact of trauma on youth. And, you know, I'm, I'm curious from your perspective, um, how these affect families and children? Because I know that, especially looking at this year, right? Even though things are opening up and, and people are getting back to a sense of normalcy and schools back in session and whatever else, there's still an underlying theme or underlying feeling of when's the shoe going to drop, right? When's the next thing going to happen that we're like, oh, okay, so now we're back in quarantine. Everybody get back into the houses. All right, you're home for two weeks now. Okay, here we go. And, you know, parents who are like, yeah, when the phone call to say somebody got exposed to this and I got to now figure out how to find daycare, how to work from home again, how to figure out, you know, all these different things. Like, like we're waiting for something to happen every single time. How are you and how do you, you know, with your experience and, and your expertise, um, give these families any kind of hope or guidance to deal with the effects of the trauma that they're experiencing and the children or the young people now who maybe as a result of what's been happening for the last 18 months are now showing disruptive behaviors as a result. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I think that one of the ways that I try to give hope is by partnering and walking alongside families during that process. And so I'm very big on building personal relationship with, with parents and letting them recognize that even though whatever they're experiencing, like although I may not have had that same experience, I will respect their experience and I really want to help them navigate towards whatever their goals are for their child. Typically in the school setting, you know, our goal is one, you have to come to get them in the building if they're experiencing like a lot of anxiety and don't want to come to school because of the things they've experienced or to keep them in the building. And so act disruptive behaviors in the sense of like acting out, like, you know, doing things that are disrupting the environment and the learning of others. And so often the reaction is, okay, you're disrupting the learning of others, you have to leave. But for some children, that's what they want because like they're, it's comfortable to be someplace else and it's uncomfortable to be in school because maybe it's challenging or maybe they're just dealing with so many things internally that they don't know how to control their emotions or feelings. And so I think the first strategy that I really try to do is to recognize kind of to see the big picture, but then also to really partner and walk alongside the parents with the parents and with the 
students as they're navigating that process. I don't always have all the answers, but I do want to help get them connected with other places to help them resolve and work through their scenarios. I think often what happens COVID aside, like in normal school environment, what sometimes happens is when children are acting out and when parents don't know how to respond, we often will rush to get them evaluated for services and get them placed so they can have different, learn in a different environment. Whether that means the same school, different classroom, whether that means a different school. And that may help the this, this situation immediately, but I don't always know that that help is going to be helpful long-term. And so I can think of two very specific examples where we were able to have some time to really work with the parents and say, okay, let's talk about what's happening. Let's talk about what happened before they came to this school, what happened while they're at school. We were able to kind of uncover trauma. And so that's one of the reasons I became interested in trauma because I can remember very specific students who what we saw at school was running out of the classroom, jumping on furniture, climbing off things, hitting people, fussing, cussing. And this was from like a five-year-old, a kindergarten student as an example. And so, you know, and we saw these behaviors, but when I, when I talked to his therapist, we had a mental health consultant in our school, he said, oh, well, he's telling me he's seen these, these and these things happen. So this child had seen trauma, he had seen domestic violence, he had seen someone get shot. And so when he was acting out, he was acting out those things very aggressively, but we, had I not talked to that mental health consultant to say, okay, what's he like with you one-on-one? -on -one? What is he saying to you? I would, could have just assumed that he would have been acting out because he's a bad kid, not because he's been exposed to trauma. So then we called his family, we worked with his dad, and his dad said, yes, I'm his dad, I'm his dad, but I haven't seen him live with him for three years. And so, you know, then, okay, we have a child who's been exposed to domestic violence at some point, who's seen physical and physical aggression in his community, who's now living with a different provider, a different caregiver, and who's not with his birth, with his, with his biological mother, you know, so like he's also experiencing separation, separation anxiety. And so, again, we were able to work with work with that family to help get them connected to resources, to connect with mom, to kind of get a plan in place so that when he moved back to mom, he at least had a stable plan. We could say, OK, we have tried these things. These five things worked really well. These five things did not work really well. Don't try them, we would recommend. And we had a relationship with the dad to be able to say, okay, if we call you, you know we have your best your son's best interest at heart. We're not saying get him out of school. We're saying help us keep him here, help us help him learn. And so just in, in doing some things differently for that one student, I can definitely say that like I saw the difference that it made when I partnered with the parent, when I helped navigate the situation with getting more information and helping everyone involved kind of see the bigger picture um, so that that child had a different trajectory versus just the immediate sometime reaction of, oh, you're acting out, go home, stay home, or, oh, let's find another solution. So that's just one example that I would say, aside from COVID, aside from COVID of how, um, how I'd like to problem solve to help find solutions for students and help them be more successful in school. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like it's a very holistic approach. You really mm -hmm. trying to hit it off from different angles. And, you know, trying to figure out the history, not just looking at the signs and symptoms, but looking at the causation of why someone's doing those things. And, you know, I, I think a lot of people um, in, in various situations, you know, will, will go, like you said, on the route of, well, they should be in a different classroom, or let's go down the road of medication, or let's, you know, all those different um, uh, antidotes for the problem. But it's always a bigger problem than what we always see. And, you know, you mentioned the word trauma, you know, whether you're down south, like, you know, like you grew up mostly, but you've also been uh, in the Northeast, like you did for, for, for school, you know, my daughter sees a lot of stuff on the train. Um, she's six years old, you know, so we talk about trauma, trauma can be as, as, as insane as domestic violence and all these other things, you know, gunshots and what have you to, you know, seeing someone maybe having an episode on the train or, um, you know, looking at someone who's homeless on as you're walking to school, you know, on, on her scooter and trying to explain, you know, why that person doesn't have what we have. Um, mm -hmm. All those things can be traumatic in, in the same regard. And, and, and I do think that your um, expertise in trying to really circumnavigate what the real issue is and looking at it from different perspectives is, it's the best way to do it. I just don't know if that always happens in all in all school situations, and you you have a better idea of that than I would. Clearly, um, do you do you feel like this this um, this plan or the, the way that you respond is is the norm, or do you feel like um, that the responses are usually different? And if and if so, why? So I'm probably biased, right? Because you know because I've worked in schools, but 
I, I think that there are professionals who are trained to respond the way that I responded because I think at school psychologists were trained to do the things that I discussed. However, I think oftentimes there's other pressures and other factors that maybe keep that from happening. So for example, the examples where I'm able to navigate that process is when I have the relationship with the, with the school staff and when I have the sanctioning and the freedom to be able to do different than the, what the box says. So the box would say, they refer for special education evaluation. You have to do it in this amount of days, get it done. And if we're expedited, we want you to do it as quickly as possible so that we can mitigate the situation as quickly as possible. And so when those factors are there, there are times when I'm not able to navigate and advocate in that way. Um, but I think there are definitely people who are trained to do that, whether it's a school psychologist, guidance counselor, other people in the school building who are who have that training, who can help navigate that process. But I do feel like um, oftentimes that's not the case from my own experience and what I've seen, what I've heard. And so um, oftentimes it's not the case. And it could be also you know, sometimes parents are not willing to trust the school system because of their own experiences as an adult and growing up in schools, um, you know, or they maybe their circumstances, maybe they are also dealing with mental health challenges. And so they're not able to be physically be present, mentally be present. And so that will sometimes also make it harder to like navigate and problem solve. But I would like to see this become the norm, but I think it's going to take um, some, some things shifting. It's going to take people allowing those of us who are trained to do this to actually do what we're trained to do and to have the freedom to do that and to do what's best in the interest of the child, not necessarily what's in the best interest of the adults and the environments who are um, making rules and, and decisions. Gotcha. So, you know, Ayanna, I, I, I love, I, I always forget that uh, you're a Southern girl and, and I'm always reminded every time I talk to you because then the accent comes out when you say certain words, um, like cussing. But, uh, <laughs> but, you know, as, as, yeah, well, you know, uh, you know, my, my thing I share with you, my, my dad's side is from Charleston, South Carolina. Uh -huh. um, and my mom's side is, is mostly from the West Indies. So, you know, I'm, I'm okay. a hybrid in most ways. So mm -hmm. I'm the one who listens to Soka and also likes fried chicken, you know, whatever else. But, <laughs> um, you know, I, I, I think about all of the different stigmas that go around mental health in general. And, you know, whether it's, um, northern versus southern mentalities or what have you um but a lot of those things transfer over also into um our faith-based communities and you know as someone who is of a faith-based community as you are um you're a minister of the faith and you're also a strong supporter of mental health um and in some situations those two things don't always align right sometimes it will be in certain situations where churches will say let's pray about it and there, there's no real support for the mental health services that are out there um, how do you balance the stigmas and stereotypes that exist, right, in regards to communities of color, communities of faith, um, not believing in or not seeking or seeking out um, mental health services when they should be an option or at least should be considered for a certain situation? Yeah, I think that's definitely a delicate balance because I can think of, again, very specific examples um, where I can think of one child who wasn't a... Um, who's a child who wasn't a child of color. He was a Caucasian child, um, but his family was very, had very, very strong um, religious beliefs. And so they were working with this child um, and they really wanted to see some change in the behaviors that the child was experiencing. And we're kind of at a point where they were very frustrated with like, why, like, why is this not changing? And so one of the things I was able to help them to do, and in that capacity, I was helping them as an evaluator. So I was actually helping him do the evaluation to kind of assess what was the condition what was happening. So they were seeking mental health support, but they were really still very holding on to like, we've done Christian counseling, we've done reading scripture, we've done these different things. Why is this not changing? And so with that, that particular child, he had experienced very, very, very significant trauma from a young child um, up until he was removed from his birth parents. And so I was able, I hope to help them understand, okay, yes, the things you're doing, like praying, reading scripture, those things are awesome. If you believe in those things, do those things. But he also needs some trauma-based therapy because when these things are happening, he is remembering the past experiences. He's remembering being sold by his parents for drugs. He's remembering being sexually molested. Like he's having these very vivid memories. And so he needs some very specific skills to help him navigate that. Scripture is great. Do that if you believe it. Reading the Bible is great, but he needs a different kind of therapy than what other children may be benefit from who haven't had the same experiences. And as far as I think of just communities not necessarily being trustworthy, I think part of that's going to be a matter of being present 
and being willing to have uncomfortable conversations when the norm is to not talk about it. I can think of my own family experiences. I've had family members who've had mental health difficulties and no one knew. Well, the adults knew, but like children, peers, siblings, we didn't, it was never talked about. And even to this day, there's certain things that we just, we don't as a family talk about because it's not socially acceptable. So I think part of my role is to say, hey, I am a trained psychologist. Let's have a conversation. Can we address that this isn't just them being cray cray or this isn't just them being who they are that may be part of their personality, but there's something that could be different. You know, when I think about what's typical, and what's normal functioning, like this may be a little different than that. And we can probably find a way to, to help with that if you're willing to navigate that. So I think part of it is just being willing to talk about it, being willing to, if someone says, well, they don't want to deal with it, still appropriately respect their boundaries, but also find ways to make the back door to get support and to get help. And I think that's really important, especially in the African-American community, that community, um, and faith, Black faith community, being able to say, hey, yes, God will provide all of our needs. He's also given us resources and tools, and you can find someone who believes what you believe to navigate that process if that's really important for you. At the same time, recognizing that not everyone believes and has a faith, and, and that, that's okay as well. And so I want to be very mindful of recognizing where my clients are and not imposing my beliefs, but, but meeting them where they are and helping them accomplish what their goals are for their treatment. And so if they're if they're not interested in faith, we don't discuss it, we don't talk about it. But if they are, I definitely will bring that into our treatment and help them navigate through that process along with what's evidence-based practices for the profession. Yeah, and I think that's that's exactly how it should be. I think that's when it works the best. Um, I do feel like sometimes people, um, yes, they they fall into the bucket of just gonna pray about it and see how it goes, you know. And and I get that, you know. And if you are of someone who's of a faith based religion or a faith based group, absolutely. And if you're not, then you know clearly also fine. But there are certain things that you need someone who can give you, like you said, the skills just to be able to do that and have an outlet, have a, have a plan, have a strategy, have a situation where you can get out of that thing doing certain things. And, you know, there, there are so many stigmas, not just people, uh, communities of color, but just around the world with their mental health. But again, now is a great time because it's just been on the forefront of everyone's mind. You look at the Olympics, you look at all of the athletes who have been struggling with so many things, or at least now talking about it openly yes. about their struggles and the stresses and, you know, being interviewed after you lose a race immediately. We were talking about Shakira Richards being interviewed literally like five seconds after she lost that race and people were getting mad at her because she's responding emotionally. But yeah, she just lost a huge race. You know what I mean? So there has to be some kind of grace or some kind of understanding that yes, people have emotions, they have, they have feelings and that there needs to be some kind of boundaries set up so that people can use the strategy that they should be able to use without feeling like there's no room for that. And that's why you have situations right. where, yeah, people don't want to go to these interviews because they don't want to say what they feel because there's not enough time in the process how they're right. really feeling. There's not enough space for them to be honest about anything without everyone you know, having cameras on them and not, them not being able to really have a chance to debrief, use those strategies that you're talking about and then present themselves accordingly to the rest of the world. So it's, it's a bigger picture. It's, it's a bigger thing. It's not just about um, people of color. It's, it's us as human beings. Um, whether you're someone who lost a race on the track or someone who's gone through trauma in other ways, we got to be able to recognize that strategies do help. Um, not negating prayer and fasting and meditation, all those things actually help as well, but it's good to have a plan. And you know who better to go than to go to a trained specialist to really use that plan to, to put it into action. So I'm glad that you're doing that on a, on a regular basis. Thank you. Um, Listen, I, I know you have a, like for me, a, a passion for young people. Um, it's something that, you know, if, if you're someone who's in that boat, it, it, it's, it's fun because it, it lets you see the trajectory of, of how life goes. And usually people who have a passion for young people had someone in their lives who fed into them or, 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 or poured into them and they want to return the favor. Um, and it seems like you're doing that in various communities down there. Um, my question for you now is what inspires you um, during this time to be a mentor for young people, given all the things that are happening and all the mental health things that are out there as well, um, you're continuing to, to be a mentor to so many people and in so many ways. What inspires you to, to continue to do that? 
I think that part of my inspiration is, as you said, I've had people who have poured into me before. So I think about my parents and the sacrifices that they made so that I could do different summer activities and do different things after school and, and be able to go, like them allowing me to go to different things and get experiences. Um, I think of like teachers that I've had who, you know, I still have contact with, you know, who inspire me and who encourage me. Um, and so I just think that I don't, I think it's my obligation. Like I believe for me, my obligation is because I've made it and because I'm making progress forward, that I need to help those who are coming behind me to do the same thing and to go even further. Um, so that I, I just, that's just who I believe that I am. Like I believe that I am given gifts so that I can then give to others, that I'm given opportunities so that I can open the doors for others. And sometimes I think it's just a matter, I also really believe in just being present and being seen and being known. And so Sometimes I think, you know, just being um, being a visible person, like being an African-American woman who has a doctorate in my community and just letting students see that, yes, you can be an African-American woman and have a doctorate and be in our community. Um, often I think, you know, I was, when I first started where I'm working currently, when I told people where I work, they were like, oh, you're the new secretary. Nothing wrong with being a secretary. Secretaries are my good friends. Um, I believe secretaries know everything, just like janitors know everything. In any business you go to, the secretary and the janitor, make them your best friends and you'll have what you need and get what you need. But the assumption was for multiple people is that as an African-American woman, I was the new secretary. Someone else I told where I was working and she was in tears. And I'm like thinking, okay, like why is she crying? And for her, she said, I grew up in that community. And when I was growing up, I experienced so much racism there that I was ready to like quit school. She's like, and so for me to see you as a black woman in that community, because she's also a black woman and she was our parents age, she's like, that lets me know that there is change possible and that my sacrifice of staying the course wasn't for, wasn't for not. And so those are just two examples of, for me, sometimes it's just a matter of just being present and being willing to, to hold a space and to use the space that we have. But then in that space, again, support others who have different dreams and different goals and who look like me and who don't look like me to let them know that, hey, you can also make it and I will help, I will work with you to help you get to your goals if you're willing to do the work. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I, um, I'm often reminded, uh, I'm a director at my clinic, right? And I've been there for about nine years. And um, we've had other people who worked there in the past who are a little more uh, vocal than I am, you know, during a shift, they're a little... They walk in with uh, a certain walk, maybe a briefcase, or um, they're a certain complexion. They walk into the, the building, and people always assume, "Oh, is that is that the boss?" And I never, I never tell anyone that I'm the boss. I, I don't, I don't mention, I don't bring it up unless I have to. Like if I have to, then I will clearly, right? If there's this situation, and if I let someone know what's going on, then I'm like, "Yes, I'm." Well, who's your manager? I am the manager. You know what I mean? I'll, I'll go there, but usually I don't tell anybody that I I run that place only because. There are a number of things that come with that, right? But it's not always the first assumption when you walk into the building. It's always assumed that it's somebody else and, and someone either uh, exudes something or says something or, or has a certain mannerism in the room and they assume that's the person. And um, it, it, doesn't, it never bothered me. Um, it actually has made me laugh. And it, it made me laugh only because like what you just said, there's so many stereotypes that we, and we as people um, connect when it comes to people who we think are, higher up or high level or upper management or middle manager, whatever you want to call it. Um, so when people do find out that I am the director or what, or what have you, I get the same response. Oh my gosh, I'm so proud. I'm so proud of you. Oh my goodness. I want you to meet my son. I want you to meet my daughter. I want, and I'm not to like hook up or anything, but more, more just to be like, I want you to meet them, to let them know that they too can get here. And it's just so funny because a lot of us are doing that. There are a lot of people of color who are coming up and doing certain things. And, you know, I don't know if it's always advertised that way because with media and with social media and with the news, you don't hear about a lot of those things. We always hear about mm -hmm. the, the, the things that we're not doing well, the things that we're failing at, the things that we're uh, not, not, not getting into and, you know, all of the, the, the stereotypes that go with that. But I, I do think it's always funny that when, when we are put in situations that, um, their response is always like, oh, wow, that's amazing. I didn't know that was going to even be possible. And then the tech response is always like, I'm so proud. And, you know, I, I take pride in that. I take pride in, in, in being an African-American uh, director in, in a company that there are probably 100 offices that we have now. And there are probably only like five or six that have people of color who are actually running those offices. So I take pride in that. I take, and I know you take pride in your work as well, being someone who is a, a woman of color 
who's out there addressing and connecting with other men and women of color. And that bond is something that, you know, it's an unspoken bond that, you know, there, there's a certain uh, uh, magic to that, you know, when you can actually relate to someone and, and there's a story that's there that you guys can relate to that it's unspoken sometimes. So yes. I appreciate that you're doing that. And I, I love that I'm doing that. And and that's kind of what Be More Say is about right now, too, is it's not just about sharing knowledge and, and putting out information so people can come together and grow, but it's about that sense of community that we can come together, learn from each other, and, and be more collectively as a unit. Not so much about uh, competition, but about community over competition every single time. So, you know, Dr. Peak, I've had a number of people on this show. Uh, you right now are number 74 on this show. And I've asked everyone the same question. Be more today. What's it mean to you? What's it mean to you? So Dr. Peak, when you hear the phrase be more today, what does that phrase mean to you? So that phrase, the phrase be more today, um, be means that I have a choice and that I should actively do something, right? So be is like a verb. To me, it's a verb, be. To be present, to be, um, to be humble, to be compassionate, just literally what am I going to choose to do in the moment? More in the sense of yesterday I may have given 10% because of whatever was going on. Today I can at least give 11%. Or I might say, okay, I'm going to do 10.5 because like I recognize I'm still carrying the weight from yesterday or I can give 100% today. Um, and then today you in the present. So really being aware that like this present moment is a gift that I don't have to have, um, that others that I know and that I don't know no longer have this present moment. And so recognizing that in this moment, I have the opportunity to be present, um, to do a little bit further than I did before. And also to, to honor it by giving the best that I can. And I think of another quote of, you know, be the change you want to see in the world. And so literally, um, I, I want to, if I want to see compassion, that I need to be compassion. If I want to see social mobility, that I need to find ways and opportunities to create social mobility for those who need it. If I want to see people have advocacy, that I need to make sure that I am being an advocate respectfully in the right way and the right avenues to do that. And so, um, being willing to to be the change and to walk that out even when it's uncomfortable even when it means that i may have to you know do more do more or may have to be more at times being willing to do that is what i think be more today means to me awesome awesome dr peak any any final words you want to share with listeners who um are looking for mental health counseling uh or support services uh maybe struggling right now trying to figure out um, the next step in terms of where they can go to get to the next step for their mental um, health, mental wellness, uh, or any last thoughts you want to share or anything we talked about today during this show? So I would encourage anyone who is struggling um, with being healthy in their mind, emotions, or feelings, and, and their whole body. So if you're struggling in that area, to know that you're not alone, that all of us as humans have experienced similar struggles before, and that it's really important that you find help. And so help being, it could be talking to a friend, a loved one, but it also could be picking up the phone or Googling like local mental health counselors or professional psychologists in my area. I'm reaching out to the professional organizations. So for example, in Kentucky, there's the Kentucky Psychological Association. And so if you if you email or Google that, that organization, they will connect, they can help you connect you to someone in your community who can help provide support for you. So just know that you're not alone and that you don't have to go through it alone. I would also say to parents, because again, as a school psychologist, I'm also really big on parents and their, and their voice. And so I really want all parents to know that you are your child's biggest advocate and that you as a parent can change more in two minutes than those of us in the school system can change in 20 years. So like never be afraid to advocate for what you believe is right for your child. Listen, partner with the school system, but I, I tell every parent I meet in any meeting that we have that you are your child's biggest advocate. You're the expert on your child. You know your child better than any of us ever will, even whether we're doing therapy or, or providing services at school. And just to know your voice and recognize that you as a parent have a voice that, that speaks louder than words could ever say. And don't be afraid to share that voice with those who are in authority in, in your spheres, whether it's the doctor's office, school board, classroom, whatever the case may be, advocate and use your voice to help advocate for what you believe is best for your child. Awesome. Awesome. Dr. Pete, thank you so much for being on this show. You've made episode 74, one for the books. Uh, where can people follow you either on social media or otherwise? 
Thank you so much, Dr. Thomas, for the opportunity to talk with you and your amazing Be More community. It's been an honor and a privilege to do so. And I look forward to hearing the next guest, 75 and beyond, to see how we'll continue to grow the movement of being more today. I am on Facebook, so my first and last name. I'm on Twitter um, at I am one O-N-E Peak. And I am on um, Instagram with Peak Ayana. Those are my those are the three places you can reach out to me. And I'd love to connect and support and just to grow and create more of a network to for health and wellness and also advocacy in the school setting. Awesome. Awesome. It's been so much fun connecting with you again. And uh yeah, we gotta make sure that we link up not just, you know, every every 10 years, every five years, yes. but more often, yes, it's probably my fault, but I'll work on that. I, I take the blame as well. I've been in school for like four years. And so I didn't talk to nobody unless you were dealing with my side program or my immediate family. So yeah, I'm out from school. I can connect with lots of folks now. I'm excited. Awesome. Awesome. Cool. And folks, don't forget the quotation from today. We talked about it's hard for roots to grow. They don't trust the ground. Um, mental health is a real thing. Um, it's, it's something that we really have to make sure that we stay rooted in the ground. And again, we really can't grow unless we have a good foundation. So if everything comes from our mind, right, and, and our feelings and our inhibitions and our worries, whatever else comes from there as well, we have to make sure that we're at least grounded in that, in our mental health wellness, our mental wellness, um, especially during this time coming out of this quarantine session, as things are continuing to open up, let's reset. Let's use this time to really reset, right? We can't come out here doing the same thing we did before. It's a new time. It's a new season for all of us to go out there and to be more today in any way that you want to do it. If it's physical, go for it. If it's mental, go for it, right? And Ms. Peak, Dr. Peak explained a lot of things that we can do just to make sure that we are keeping our children and ourselves properly aligned in terms of our mental health. So um, if you know that you need to see someone who is a trained professional, find that one, that person in your, in your local area, make that appointment. Let's not fall into the stigmas that, that, that continue to keep us uh, bound by our limitations and our biases, but let's go out there and, and use the resources that are out there to take the next steps forward to get mentally well, um, so we can get physically well and live lives that you wanna live. Um, and that's my quote for you guys today and my chart for you and my mantra. Uh, let's not be afraid to go out there and ask the tough questions, um, to take the steps forward to be the best person that we can be and to use the resources that we have to get to the next step for our lives. Uh, guys, thank you so much for again joining this show. Be more today's show. Again, we are heard in 39 countries and we're going to be here next uh, Sunday night. We're going to have the show uh, on our YouTube platform and then it'll be available everywhere on, on our podcast platforms on Monday moving forward. Again, you can go online and look at my book, bemoretoday.com uh, or our music or amazon.com as well. And if you want to support us in any single way, you can go on the Be More Today site and give us some love. We appreciate all the love as always. And as I always say, folks, have a good day. Have a good night. Have a great life. And continue to take yourself to greatness to be the best version of you. We will see you next week. <laughs>